Um, <clears throat> and for the sake of time to try to do all of this uh, today, uh, we're just going to pray. Uh, normally we take prayer requests, but we're just going to pray and kind of dive right in. So uh, pray with me. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for this time together and go over your word and to, to dive deep. Thank you for preserving your word and, and uh, making it available to us so that we can know you and you can speak to us through your word. Uh, as, as part of the effectual calling and uh, the salvation that you bring to us, Lord. Thank you for, uh, thank you for electing us and, and making us yours. So we dedicate this time to you, and may it be fruitful in the hearts of uh, everyone who asks a question, and as well as the hearers, and um, we ask that it would bring you glory, and um, that you'd be here and uh, help us to treat your word responsibly. In your name, amen. Uh, so, for the sake of time, what we're going to do is, as Pastor Wood said, we're going to we're going to go through the questions, and um, we're going to there. So these three gentlemen here, they're going to ask answer the questions. I'll ask them; they'll answer. Uh, we'd ask that you refrain from any follow up questions because we want to get through these as much as we can because we want to. Uh, you guys took the time to give us these questions, so we want to get through them so uh, as well as we can. So with that said, <clears throat> uh, let's dive right into question one. Uh, question one is, would chapters 9 and 10 of the Confession describe the support for the irresistible grace portion of Tulip? And quick reminder, chapter, ten, chapter 9 is titled Of Free Will. Chapter 10 is titled, Of Effectual Calling. And in your answers, gentlemen, would you remind us what TULIP is? Yeah. Thanks, Tess. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, so the tu- uh, go ahead. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> so, so TULIP would, would refer to, uh, I'll just go through the acronym and then sort of give a short background. So TULIP, uh, Total uh, Depravity. Unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and P, uh, perseverance of the saints or the preservation of the saints. Um, and it's a it's a helpful acronym that um, has been used in church history to really uh, starting uh, going back to Augustine and, and Pelagius. That sort of art was the origin of sort of this this conversation. Um, and uh, Pelagius holding to uh, man's not being. Uh, totally depraved, but uh, depraved in in a sense, uh, him not being um, totally without the ability to believe and come to God, but him having some ability uh, by God's, uh, in a sense, common grace to be able to come to God. Augustine uh, lining up against that and saying, uh, just articulating, man is totally unable, he has nothing in himself to be able to to give or bring to the Lord, which uh, qualifies him for salvation. Um, this argument was picked up later by the um, remonstrants um, who would, would pick up um, um, Pelagius's uh, articulation and sort of want to carry that on and, and uh, uh, those who hold to, held to reform theology would say uh, in, in the name of Calvinism would articulate these doctrines of grace or the tulip which would position themselves against the remonstrance and their beliefs. So it's a, it's a lot more than that. That's just a summary. But um, I'll say it again. Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. So that would be the tulip. 
to answer the uh, question, does, do chapters 9 and 10 describe the support for irresistible grace? So that's, that is, a, I thought, a great observation. Uh, paragraph 1 in chapter 10 especially lays this out in very he uh, clear and helpful terms. It answers the question, basically, uh, does God drag people into the kingdom? Does, do people come into the kingdom sort of kicking and screaming against their wills? Um, and the answer is that no one comes into the kingdom kicking and screaming. God doesn't save a person and sort of drag them across the lawn when their <coughs> fingers are ripping up grass as they're saying, no, I don't want to go, I don't want to go. And the Lord's saying, no, you'll come. Uh, that, that doesn't happen. Men uh, come because the Lord changes their wills to come. And that grace, his, his working in that is uh, irresistible because he changes the will and the heart of the man so that they uh, find uh, the Lord desirable and they come willingly, which gets into another question I think later on, but they come willingly because the Lord makes them willing to come. And <clears throat> so he does all this in such a way um, and effectually draws them to Christ, as the confession says. Um, and he does, and so they come being, they, they are made willing to come in, in a sense. You guys can feel free to add That's to that. Well stated. That's it. All right. Thank you. <clears throat> Question number two Is there biblical support to declare that infants dying in infancy are indeed elect since they are not able to be regenerated like the rest of us? That's a weighty question. <laughs> uh, sure. I'll answer it. Um, so the question is, is there biblical support, can, can you rephrase that? Yes. Is there biblical support, support to declare that infants dying in infancy are indeed elect? My answer would be no. Uh, I don't believe that there is biblical support to declare that infants dying in infancy are indeed elect automatically. Uh, but I'd also say the opposite as well. I'd say that there isn't any biblical support to declare that infants dying in infancy are not elect either. Um, but I want to clarify what the confession says about it. Because yeah. I think a lot of times people assume, like when they read that part in the confession, I think it's chapter 10, verse 2. They read that part and they think that it's affirming something on either side. And this is what it says. It says, elect infants dying in infancy are regenerated and saved by Christ through the Spirit, who worketh when and where and how he pleases so also are elect persons who are incapable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the word. Uh, so this isn't saying, or the confession, isn't saying that all infants are elect. What it's saying is that those infants who are elect are regenerated and saved by Christ. So in, in other words, just like we, who, or those of us who are elect, those infants who are elect are also saved in the same way. Uh, an adult who is elect and an infant who is elect both require regeneration and salvation by the Spirit. And the salvation for infants are not to be understood as God giving them a special exemption to their uh, inherent guilt that they've gotten through Adam. <clears throat> so although, they've been, although they're incapable of comprehending an outward call, God, if he wishes, may communicate his gospel truth to the infant by his spirit, causing the new birth in them. An example of this is John the Baptist. In uh, Luke 
141, uh, when John the Baptist, as an infant, he leaped in his mother's womb uh, when the pregnant Mary entered her home. And so with that said, I want to say that as much as this topic is a sensitive one, we can't allow it to cause us to negotiate what I think are cardinal uh, doctrines, uh, such as the federal headship of Adam, right? Sometimes because we are sensitive to uh, this topic of infants, we, we just do away with the doctrine of, of uh, the federal headship of Adam, which, uh, which essentially teaches that uh, if you're born in Adam, which if you're human, you are, uh, you inherited uh, not only corruption from the fall in your, in your nature, but you also inherited Adam's guilt, which means you're guilty of Adam's sin by, by virtue of your union with, with Adam. And so this is something that's received, that, that guilt is also inherited in that child. Um, and that's, that's, uh, that's the doctrine of total depravity. So we also don't want to do away with the doctrine of salvation by faith alone. And, and we can't mix that up with uh, salvation by election alone. Uh, it's salvation by faith alone. And so, uh, but all that to say, God can grant faith to the child. Um, but nothing changes as far as uh, what God has to do in that human uh, to, to change him and to... Uh, to save them. So, yeah. 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 Just just for the sake of the questions that have come in, we're trying to hold questions. Just to pick up on Jeremy's point, if you have additional questions to any answers that we've given, you can submit those to the green box because we're going to, undoubtedly, we're probably not going to get through all of the questions that have been submitted today. So we're going to have a kind of an overflow session where we'll answer through those questions. So if any questions spring up regarding our answers, you can just submit those to the green box and we'll make sure that we, uh, we get to those as we want to kind of tackle all the questions that we can. Sure. Okay? Thank you. <clears throat> so keeping with the trend of weighty questions, <laughs> <All right. laughs> question number three, if God is sovereign, how can he hold people responsible? Responsible for presumably the sins against which God will judge them. Yeah, so we would just tweak that question and say since, rather than if, um, yes. since God is sovereign, um, how can we hold people, how can he hold re people responsible? And what we see in scripture are those, those two truths running uh, side by side, right? God is sovereign, that is, that he's in control of all things at all times, in all places, and man is responsible for his actions and his inactions and his words and thoughts and, and deeds, um, everything about himself. Um, and then, so where the wrestling match comes in, right, is um, those two truths, how do they come together, right? How do they, how do they align up? They appear to be in opposition to each other. Um, and, and I'm content to live with the uh, mystery of how those two truths interact um, completely. Um, and the reason that I'm content with that is because I see men in Scripture content with with that, and I was thinking of a couple passages in particular, um, in Acts chapter two, with Peter giving his sermon on the day of Pentecost. Um, he says this in Acts chapter two, in verses twenty-two and twenty-three. It says, "Men of Israel, hear these words: Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. 
This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Um, So you have Peter saying in one breath, this is according to the plan of God, the definite plan, the foreknowledge of God, and you, you killed him, right? So there's a responsibility given to the men who have put him to death, and yet this is the plan of God. So Peter in one breath holds the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man uh, together. And then a little bit later on in Acts 4, after Peter and John are <clears throat> released from, from prison, gather together with the believers, and in Acts 4, starting in verse 23 and down through verse 28, it says, When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do, all right, so here's their action, right, what's something they're doing, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Uh, so again, you have that tension there of the sovereignty of God, God ordaining all things, and yet the responsibility of man. And so passages like that cause me to be able to rest when I think about the sovereignty of God, the responsibility of man, how those two truths um, come together, I think we can't nail down specifically in our finite minds, but I can live with the tension of both of them because I see that, see that in Scripture. So that's how it doesn't cause me to lose any sleep. Um, God is sovereign and man is responsible, and that's the clear testimony of, of Scripture. So. Question four. What are some practical implications of believing in TULIP? Or perhaps asked a different way, how, what does it look like, what do our lives look like when we believe in TULIP? I think there are uh, many practical implications. um, But for one, recognizing that we haven't done uh, anything uh, to earn uh, election or to earn salvation. So we, we only repent because the Lord uh, causes us to repent. Um, we're only uh, sustained in the faith because it's God sustaining us. Um, we, we make it to the end because we're being sustained by, by God, um, the Spirit. And so it gives us, I think, a, a, a humble uh, disposition. And the Lord has been gracious to me. All that um, I am, uh, the very faith that I have has been given by God. Uh, it's been granted to us. And so that causes us to, I think, with each other, be more gracious and be more humble. Um, and so we should be willing to extend grace uh, often and extend a lot of grace in light of the fact that we've been saved by grace. Uh, God has uh, mercifully set his uh, affection upon us in the Son so that we are known by him uh, and known intimately, and he cares for us as a father. So, I mean, it's not just um, a, a theological position, but that theological position should cause us to have a, 
a right worship of God and a right uh, uh, kindness towards our brothers and sisters uh, in the faith and in the world. So I think that's one, one of many. Yeah, I'd probably just add to that. Um, I mean, uh, aside from the fact that you become profoundly biblical, uh, (laughs) your your gospel proclamation, I think, is affected by understanding your the, the tool. Uh, your gospel proclamation would not be at the mercy of a false understanding of free will, for example, uh, which I think is the reason why there's seeker-sensitive uh, approaches to evangelism and things like that, or even how, how many uh, do church. Uh, there's a seeker-sensitive method that kind of runs the way that they uh, proclaim the gospel and do church, and that's, again, their... Uh, just having a bad understanding of the free, uh, freedom of the will. Uh, your worship towards God would intensify because I, I think you won't understand the richness of God's mercy until you get the T, which is the uh, total depravity. Uh, and just meditating on that doctrine as the sort of the one doctrine that holds the other ones together, uh, I think that makes you a lot more humble, like you said, and it affects your worship. Uh, assurance in salvation. I, that's important to me. Yeah. Uh, having assurance in your salvation, and that's that's the P. Mm-hmm. Uh, the tool of uh, understanding sanctification properly. Uh, you won't make sense of verses like John twelve forty, which says, "He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, so that they cannot see with their eyes and understand with their hearts in turn." And I would heal them. So it, th- this way of doing theology helps fill in those holes or those sort of uh, uh, parts of the Bible that just seems to be counterintuitive. Uh, it actually fills in those, those holes. So I think it's helpful. Definitely, yeah. And just to, I, was, I was thinking specifically in the area of evangelism, mm-hmm. you know, just how that, how it's, uh, when I really started to understand these truths, how liberating it was as you go out to, to preach the gospel, as you're sitting there sharing with a coworker or neighbor, whatever the case may be, it, it causes you to stay rooted in the gospel um, because you understand that the person that you're speaking to, if we think about the T and Tulip, total depravity, that they're dead in their sins, right? They, they can't do anything. So it, it really forces me to stay fixed on the gospel, right? I, I can't do anything. I'm not going to have some nice persuasive technique that's going to bring something here that'll sound clever and be able to bring this person in. I understand that the power is in the gospel, and that's what will bring this dead sinner uh, to life. And then I would say also an understanding of that has really intensified my my hope in the gospel when I think about you know lost people because... I don't know if you guys have ever experienced this, but maybe you're praying for somebody for just year after year after year, and they are just as hardened as they can possibly be, and it seems to only grow more. Uh, Unconditional election is very encouraging for me because it helps me to understand that however hard that man's heart or that person's heart may be in this moment, God can change it in an instant, as he did with Paul on the road to Damascus. Um, so however hardened that person may appear in that moment, I'm still praying fervently because I understand that if they're his, that they'll hear his voice at some point. Um, so it causes me to persevere in my prayer life uh, for, those, for those things where if I don't understand it, and I think back to when I didn't really grasp, you know, an understanding of, of the doctrines of Scripture, um, you know, you get very discouraged. You're looking at that and you're just saying, man, that person... 
they're worse than when I started, you know, talking to them about Christ. They're, they're more shut off to these, to these things. And that would cause discouragement, a lack of fervency in prayer, and so on. So I think that's a very practical way. It yeah. just helps you in a, a day in and, and day out. I want to share something with that. Just a really short, short story. Yeah. The first time I went um, evangelizing with uh, Pastor Ron and his gang of evangelists, I was with him, uh, and it was one of the first times I had I was here at this church, and we went out, and um, I was used to a certain form of evangelism, which looked like uh, sharing the gospel with with people, and then asking them to pray a prayer with me, and after they pray that prayer, I would pretty much say, okay, you know, you're good, and sort of start to, to walk away, because believing that they prayed the prayer, and so the Lord heard that and granted that. Um, and the first time I did that, I was with uh, Ron and a friend of his. I don't remember his name, really tall, no, tall guy, yeah. Matt. Yeah. And um, I did that. Me, myself, Matt, and another guy were evangelizing. And um, I approached the guy and shared the gospel with him and had him pray the prayer. And I remember when um, I did that, I sort of turned to, to walk away. And I was and we were making eye contact with Matt. And he was just looking like, are <laughs> 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 you serious? <laughs> like, you could? <laughs> And so uh, after that, he very graciously pulled me aside um, and just explained to me that when we share the gospel uh, with people, we simply, we, we share the gospel, we do call them to repent, but we share the gospel, but God does that work in their hearts, and we trust the Lord to um, uh, harden, soften hearts, remove hearts of stone, give hearts of flesh, very graciously walk, through me, walk with me through some of these things. And from that day, one, I never that again and two it just gave me a, a better understanding of um, even something like the, the the tulip and the doctrines of grace and remembering that the Lord is sovereign the Lord um, does what he wills no one can thwart his hand and raising someone from their spiritual deadness is not as simple as having them pray a prayer after you um, as if the power lies in their reciting of those words. Uh, it is spiritual resurrection. <laughs> it takes the Lord to say, get up, rise spiritually in someone's heart. And so it was a, just a really good, what you say is true. You, you're always thinking in the line of evangelism, and I, I've experienced that firsthand. So just a, okay. All right. Uh, seemingly building on that, our next question is, is progressive sanctification exclusively a property of the Holy Spirit? The second part is, what properties are imputed by definitive sanctification? <clears throat> Specifically, what would have been imputed during the Old Testament times? <clears throat> I'm going to assume that by property, um, he's, he's, meaning, he's meaning work, right? So I'm guessing the question is, is uh, progressive sanctification exclusively a work of the Holy Spirit? Um, this may be shocking to some, but my answer is no. Um, the verse in Philippians 2, 12 through 13 says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Uh, and so the reason my answer is no uh, is because this work is being brought out by a means. And anything that is brought out by a means means uh, that there is some form of cooperation. 
Now, <clears throat> let me backtrack a little bit. If the question were asked in a more general sense, like, is sanctification, not progressive sanctification, but is sanctification exclusively a work of the Holy Spirit, I might say yes, because if we were to speak of this in a more general sense, we could involve, we can involve other important factors like God's decree, uh, the, the question about God using primary or secondary causes in your work or in your growth of sanctification. Uh, some have phrased the question like this, is sanctification monergistic or synergistic? Which I would probably reply by saying that a question, that question is phrased in a very oversimplistic way to say, you know, just to, to, to ask whether uh, sanctification is monogistic or uh, synergistic is very simplistic. Uh, and the reason why is that it ignores the nuances that are woven into that subject. For example, me personally, I've always felt uh, comfortable saying that sanctification is purely monergistic. But really, deep down inside, all I really wanted to affirm was this hard determinism in God's sovereignty. That's really what I was just wanting to protect. By saying that God is doing all the sanctification, which in a sense he is, I, I'm really, what I'm really wanting to protect is the fact that God is sovereign. But that, that's a different question in and of itself. Uh, whether God is sovereign, yes. Does your sanctification require you to do stuff? Yes. It requires you to go to church, for example. It requires you to attend the means of grace. If you don't do these things, will you be affected as far as your sanctification? Yeah. If you don't read your Bible, you're not growing. If you don't pray, you're not growing. If you're not in fellowship, you're not growing. And so you see how it, it, it has certain effects. Um, real quick. Uh, Again, when, when, first of all, I'll say this. When you speak about it in those kind of categories, you separate the decree of God with uh, progressive sanctification, you actually make progress in this kind of discussion. And a good example of uh, theologians who I think are thinking rightly about how to answer this is uh, a Puritan, John Owen. Uh, he held the view that Christians receive from God an actual infusion of habits which means that, that John Owen believed that God infuses habits. And so these, these new habits that you have that cause you to grow in your sanctification are actually infused in you. Uh, someone like Francis Turretin, a Reformed scholastic, he would say that all we're really given is, at the point of generation, a new heart. Um, he's giving us a new principle in us which inclines us to move towards uh, a progress in sanctification. But it, it, he, the Spirit doesn't interfere uh, in the normal pattern of your soul by forcing in certain patterns. It would get, he would give you the desires, but you would have to go and pursue um, a, a, a sort of a healthy pattern in your life to grow in your sanctification. And so... I, I don't want to say which guy I hold to. I'm still working through that. But I, I would say that's the way to think about it. The way to think about it is, um, yes, you have to do something about it. Um, ultimately, God has decreed that you will arrive in glorification. Um, but there is, in a sense, at least in a temporal sense, a cooperation uh, where you're, you're held responsible in uh, attending the means of grace. So.
Yeah, I think that's well said. And the, the, the question itself, as Will mentioned, is typically birthed out of a desire to protect God's sovereignty. Um, and so we, we want to be careful. It's, it's not, and you articulated it well, it's not a simple yes or no response. You really have to look at the scriptures and think through what's going on there. Even in that passage in Philippians 2, where the, what Owen would mention there, the infusion of habits come out of God's working in me uh, to cause these things. But where we want to guard ourselves is we don't want to get to the place where we say, well, the, the reason I didn't read my Bible is because God didn't work in me to read my Bible and cast the blame back onto God for not, you know, no, not doing that. So we have things that we have been given. At the end of the day, we're all going to stand back and say, solo de, soli deo gloria, right? That, that's going to be it. Justification, sanctification, uh, glorification, all glory to God, God alone. The, the other side of that, what we're trying to um, protect against is that aspect of, okay, God's begun this work in me now. Now I've got to pick up where he started. That, that's the other danger of it, is, is thinking that this is all me, it's all you know, on, on me to keep this going, because then you fall into this works righteousness that you're in, and you'll start reading your Bible, not because you want to read your Bible, but because you, know, you just think it's the right thing to do and to check, check, a, check a box. So there's errors on both sides that we're trying to avoid as we navigate through that, um, but as we come to the end of the day, again, we're, it's going to be all glory to God alone for every aspect of, of, our, of our salvation. Yes. All right, good stuff. <clears throat> Next question would be from specifically citing paragraph 3 of chapter 15 titled, Of Repentance Unto Life and Salvation. Uh, the question is, statement slash question, the Holy Spirit assists or provides both faith and repentance. Which parts are acted on by the believer versus produced directly by the Holy Spirit? Yes. And specifically in the context of, of paragraph 3, chapter 15. Yeah, so let's read that. Did you just read that whole uh, I, I paragraph? Can, I can read it for you. Yeah, yeah if you would. So we. So chapter 15, paragraph 3. The saving repentance is an evangelical grace whereby a person, being by the Holy Spirit made sensible of the manifold evils of his sin, does, by faith in Christ, humble himself for it with godly sorrow, detesting it and self-abhorrency, praying for pardon and strength of grace with a purpose and endeavor by supplies of the Spirit to walk before God in a and, and well-pleasing in all things. So, yeah, I, you know, how I was thinking through this question is I wouldn't see it as a one versus the other, as, yeah. as you're kind of pitting these two, um, as, it's, as it's kind of stated here, um, which parts are acted on by the believer versus produced directly by the Holy Spirit. Um, I would see it as one creating the other. Um, and, and what I mean by that is the Holy Spirit is the one who produces both repentance and faith in the, in the sinner, right? That, that's a gift that's given to us. 2 Timothy 2.25 talks about that, that God grants us repentance um, unto life. And in uh, Philippians 1.29, God has granted to us faith 
right? Um, so it's as, as God grants that to us, as he grants us repentance and faith, Desmond kind of mentioned this earlier, God changes our wills so that we act upon that and we really repent and believe the gospel uh, actually as gifts that the Holy Spirit has, has given to us. Uh, so rather as seeing those two in opposition to each other, the one creates the other. Uh, the, the gifts that the Spirit gives in repentance and faith and the renewal of our hearts causes us to actually repent and face, and, and almost simultaneously. I, I don't want to say actually simultaneously because one has to happen before the other, um, but virtually simultaneously. Um, God grants that, and you, your eyes are open, you repent and believe the gospel. Um, yeah, so that, that's how I would see those. Not as pitted against each other, but as one actually creating the other. That's, that's true. I mean, thinking back to Philippians 1, 29, which says that we've been granted to believe, and Ephesians 2, 8 says that faith is a gift. So we're given faith, but faith takes a hold of something, uh, namely the promises of Christ, those salvific promises of Christ. So the question is, I think, how or, or who does that? Um, who does that taking a hold of? How much is the spirit and how much is the believer? Now, when we think about repentance, I think it's important for us to re remember that the Holy Spirit doesn't repent for us. Mm -hmm. So it's not just us sort of there and the Holy Spirit is uh, uh, saying, okay, I, I confess and believe as we're just sort of these, these bodies that you know, are not. <laughs> that looks weird. Possessed. <laughs> Possessed, exactly. So we're, we're not puppets. Um, we have bodies, we have faculties, and the spirit works within a, a person, a human being, and causes them to repent and believe. And so it, we're not just sort of these, again, these puppets, these uh, empty sh shells in a sense, but the spirit is working in a, a, a person. So again, it's not just, like you said, Pastor Ron, it's not just one or the other. And, thinking it's one or the other, as you've already said, it, there are issues with that, and they can lead into other issues, but it is, the Spirit is working in a person, and that person repents and believes. So I'm just saying the same thing you said, but. All right. Our next question is, well, it's, it's a bit of a two-parter. What are some of the most popular typological ceremonial laws that are misconstrued by churches and or the world into moral laws. The second part is how does that hinder the message of the Bible and the gospel? So if we would, let's take the first part. How, what are some of the more, most popular typological ceremonial laws that we sort of turn into moral laws? And if you would, help us, remind us what, it, what, what that word typological means in this context. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, typological or type, basically, is... Um, is uh, something that is foreshadowing something else. So you have a type in the anti-type. You have something, let's just say, from the Old Testament that um, that was real and had significance in that time for those people, um, but existed for the purpose of uh, pointing to something that was either greater or more developed, uh, sort of like a fulfillment of that type or that shadow. Um, to answer the question, though, I think uh, there are many things that 
um, our types and shadows in the Old Testament. That in the New Testament, uh, it wouldn't make sense for us to go back to the types and shadows because the fulfillment is already here and has already been given to us. Um, so uh, an easy one is uh, the sacrificial system, right? Where uh, an animal was sacrificed to atone for the person's sin. Well, there is a, that, that, that was a type, a pointer, right, to the antitype, which is Christ. Jesus was the lamb that was slain on our behalf. And so if we, if we already have an atonement in Christ, it wouldn't make sense for us to go backwards and start doing animal sacrifices. Um, but the question, too, was uh, what are some of the popular things that exist today in certain churches or cults that um, people are carrying over into New Covenant, New Testament um, uh, church life? I think a popular one is the dietary laws of Israel. You know, every, everyone wants to kind of go back to that for multiple reasons. I think uh, it's popular to go back to... Uh, well, it's popular to be on a diet. Not for me, but it's popular to be on some sort of diet. Uh, and so people love that stuff. Um, and the thing with the, the dietary laws of Israel, uh, they, they, were, they, were, they had their purposes. They were intended to sanctify and preserve the line in which Christ would come. And we see even in the New Testament that uh, that is done away with. Right, our justification, our salvation, our feeding is 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 upon Christ and Christ alone, uh, and it distorts the gospel when churches today require things that have already either been done away with, or don't serve any other purpose except to to bind the the consciences of people uh, and make them assume that they have to do this in order for them to gain some sort of justification. Another thing I think is big is uh, certain certain misinterpretations of biblical prophecy. Uh, which hold to like a future reinstitution of animal sacrifices. That, that's a big thing uh, where uh, some, some eschatological positions would hold that there's a future reinstitution of animal sacrifices, which, which speaks on the sufficiency of Christ and his work, you know, things like that. So we just have to guard ourselves and, and always protect those cardinal <clears throat> doctrines that, that would... Uh, you know, that, that are important and should inform all other uh, practices in the Christian church. Well stated. You have a follow-up? Yeah, I want to add to that. That, that was really good. Well, I think another um, that we see sort of <clears throat> in evangelicalism and in the world is this, um, this the land, the physical land, mm -hmm. which Israel possessed, which I think was a uh, type which pointed to something greater than... Uh, itself, uh, it points to uh, uh, the new heavens and the new earth. I think ultimately, if you follow that theme in Scripture, but throughout uh, evangelicalism, it's really popular to say that we sort of need to get Israel or, or you know Jewish people back into this land. They need to possess this land, and if we are not for that, then uh, God stands against us, and we are under His judgment. Um, and I think it 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 looks at an Old Testament. Uh, temporal promise which God actually fulfilled it says in, in, um, in, Josh, in Joshua uh, but that points to I think the new heavens and the new earth which is when the whole earth becomes the land of promise the whole earth becomes a place wherein uh, God dwells with his people um, so I think that's just a very common uh, 
idea and evangelicalism and in the world as a whole. So I know there are, there are different yeah. views on that, but that's something I would say is a type which points to something greater than itself. <clears throat> All right, next question. How should a believer treat an unbeliever <coughs> or an apostate? And if you would maybe help us define what is meant by apostate, what you think <clears throat> they're asking there about apostate. Yeah, by, by definition, it would be somebody who had embraced the faith at one point and has now walked away from that faith in various forms, either just walked away from it um, quietly or walked away from it in great opposition and is continuing to um, speak out against the faith that they once um, professed. But as I thought about that question, it really is twofold, right? I mean, you, you, I don't want to categorize those essentially the same, um, but I think over all of that, the, the mindset, as we see in Titus 3, is showing perfect courtesy toward all people and remembering that it's only by God's grace that we are where we are, so there should be a spirit of humility that's governing us as well. Um, but like I said at the beginning there, there has to be some set of distinction there. And, and an example would be <clears throat> maybe you have an unbelieving <clears throat> co-worker who's caught up in, in his or her sin, just as we were once before we, we came to Christ. Um, they're just living a godless life. And that, that person is going to be a little different than maybe somebody who has professed the faith, walked away from it, and is working against that faith that they once professed. Um, so there has to be discernment in thinking through that. That, that person who is an apostate uh, may need to be avoided. And, and stayed away from because of the danger that they pose to other believers or the church at large. Um, so again, I think we have to use wisdom in walking through those and hearing what scripture says regarding how we should uh, respond to both of those in, in both categories. But the one thing that's overriding in both of them, we should be fervently praying uh, for both of them and seeking to do, um, uh, seeking to bring the gospel to them consistently and doing as much good to them as we possibly can in hopes that God will either bring them to a true understanding um, of the gospel or help them to awaken to the truth of the gospel that they had previously previously heard. So, I'll just add real quickly. Uh, I was thinking about, I know in my life, uh, there's been situations where I'm with, uh, I happen to be either hanging out with someone who believes that they're Christian which is kind of a weird, uh, weird situation because you know it's hard to say that they're apostate, or you know it's hard to call them an unbeliever. You know they're sort of in a in a place where you know I personally don't think that this person is an, an is, is a believer. That sort of situation, uh, and I'm thinking about what it says in First Corinthians five nine through thirteen, um, where it says. This has a context, but I'll point out just key, key, key things. Uh, it says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters, since you would need to get out of the world, right? So you already see something there that the people that are not considered brothers or considered the church, there's a way... Uh, to be with them. And it is saying that we shouldn't separate ourselves from them necessarily. Obviously, there's, 
situations where it's probably not a good idea to hang out with them. Mm -hmm. But generally speaking, uh, the Bible is not telling you to stay away from the world. You know, Paul there is saying you have to be there. You can't leave the world, so you have to interact with worldly people. But look what it says about uh, so-called brothers. It says, but now I'm writing you, I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexually immoral, uh, excuse me, sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard or swindler, not to even eat with such a person or not to eat, not to even eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is not those uh, is it not those inside the church whom you are, you are to judge? God, God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Um, and obviously there needs to be wisdom, as Pastor, Pastor Ron said. But there's also this ethic there that we have to be able to draw the line with those who are calling themselves brothers, but you know they're really not. They're not living consistent with the gospel, and they're not a, a repentant uh, sinner. Uh, there needs to be some sort of distinction there, um, so that there is a, a separation between who you know who are the people of God and who are the people of the world, um, but never in a way that's completely isolated. Um, you know, we have our we, we are to be salt and light in the world, but among those who call themselves brothers, we have to be we have to in a sense purge uh, purge the uh, evil one among us according to according to that passage. So, yeah. Coming to our next question, it may end up being our last question because uh, it seems like one we want to give some real time to. Uh, I want to read it. So there's a statement and then the, in the actual question. So it may be something we can, we can probably all relate to. So it starts, Many times my heart is tempted to be discontented with God because he has not sanctified me more than he has or that he hasn't rid me of certain sinful failures. So I'm going to stop right there and the way it's worded, uh, this is coming from someone who seems to have a very sincere desire to overcome their sin, overcome the sinful habits and, and we talked about total depravity as part of TULIP and we, it seems like this person has a sense of that total depravity that that sin brings upon them that we're born into. Um, so just that as a background, the question is, how do we avoid thinking that God is holding back his sanctifying grace without simply saying or, or explaining it away, God owes us nothing? And that's sort of the callback to the total depravity and, and uh, the fact that in our sin, we, we earn God's wrath upon us. So uh, what say you? I really appreciate this question. Um, and as I was thinking through it, <clears throat> it's just a, a great question. And I think it's um, an, an even right uh, question. And so whoever wrote this, uh, you should know that everyone in this room <laughs> uh, probably feels the exact same way and has gone through the exact same thing. Uh, there is a war waging within you um, as a believer. That, that war is it's, it's raging, it's, it's hard, but it's also a good sign and evidence that the spirit is indwelling you. Um, the, the spiritually dead person does not fight. There is no war there. But the, the spiritually alive person does fight, and there is a war. 
And as we've talked about, uh, the Spirit is working that, that within us. So it's actually something that uh, should encourage you as well. And I wanted to, to read uh, Ephesians 1, um, 3 to, to 14. It's, it's a few verses, but I just think it's really good for us to, to see this. <clears throat> so this passage, passage basically lays out um, everything necessary for salvation and sanctification uh, has been given to us uh, in, in Christ. So Ephesians 1, starting at verse 3, says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So first, we have to remember that the believer has been given every spiritual blessing in Christ. God is not withholding from us anything uh, necessary for our salvation and sanctification. It's been given to us in Christ. Uh, verse four, just as he chose, and then he sort of goes on, on to lay out what those are, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us to adoption, as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of his glory and of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to the kind intention which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven, and things on earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose, uh, his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that he, that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the glory, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. <clears throat> so he lays out what the believer has been given. Salvation, uh, faith, uh, we've been predestined, elected, given faith to believe. He sustains us uh, by his promises. He brings us to the end, it says in 1 Peter 1, 3 to 6. And so the, the, the believer can actually take um, much courage in the fight and also in the fact that the Lord is preserving him to the end. 1 Peter 1, 3 to 6 says our salvation is being guarded for us in heaven, in, in Christ. It's being guarded for us, an inheritance that we will take hold of. And so there's a, from the beginning to end, God is sustaining and bringing us along to an inheritance which he's guarding for us. And so the believer will make it to the end, um, not because they get up every morning willing themselves to make it, um, not because they um, are such strong and courageous Christians, uh, God sustains them and preserves them and brings them to the end. And I think it, it helps us um, uh, to avoid uh, thinking wrongly about it and saying that um, God is, he's owing us anything, which I think is a good question. How do we avoid uh, saying that God owes us something um, or, the, or the fact that God owes us nothing? 
God doesn't owe us anything. And you know what that should do in your heart? It should make you all the more thankful and, um, and awful of God's mercy towards you because he doesn't owe it and yet he gives it freely and preserves you to bring you to the end, which is himself. And so the Christian has a lot to, uh, to, to be thankful for and God has given promises in Christ for us to hold to. Um, and just so know that, that everyone, uh, every true believer fights that same fight and it's sustained by the same Christ, um, which is encouraging. Yeah, I think that the question was phrased well um, as far as how do we avoid thinking that God is holding back? Because that's where the war is. The war is in our minds. And, you know, Scripture says our minds need to be renewed because we don't think rightly. We think wrongly. So I appreciate what Desmond just read out of Ephesians 1. I was thinking as well in Romans 8, we just have to understand that God is for us and not against us. We just have to get that into our minds and get that driven down deep into our hearts. And he, he couldn't have displayed that any more than he did at the cross. So when we, when we have our minds renewed with that, um, we can understand sanctification, the process of sanctification, you know, rightly. Um, we, we need, and I don't mean this, we need to be passive against sin, but we need to be patient with our sanctification. As, Des, as Desmond said, every one of us would love to wake up tomorrow perfected. Right? And just walk in total obedience. Every thought, word, deed, everything perfect in, in the sight of God. Um, but the road of sanctification is a long road. And, and some sins die easy, more easily than, than others. Um, there's things that you're still carrying. And there's other things that you probably saw earlier in your life with Christ. That they died pretty quickly. Um, and some things, and that's just the way that the Lord has, has ordained that. Something else that I want to say is we, we want to guard ourselves from being overly introspective to the sense that mm. where we become so discouraged with our lack of sanctification. Mm. Um, Kevin DeYoung in his book, The Whole in Our Holiness, which is a great read if you haven't read that uh, before, he really brought out a great point in that book where he said, when's the last time we stopped to thank God for the progress that we have made in our sanctification? Mm. And, and even maybe that sin that you're fighting, right? That you can look back over and you say, man, I'm still battling this. But you can look back over the years and you can say, but you know what? There, there's been some progress there. I'm still fighting it, and it's still a nuisance. <laughs> um, but by the Spirit, it's slowly being put to death. And when's the last time we stopped to thank God for His grace and seeing that sin slowly, <laughs> slowly dying? Um, so that was something that really encouraged me from, from DeYoung's book. And I was convicted by it because I thought, man, I'm, I'm often just complaining with the indwelling sin that remains and not thanking God for the progress that has been made um, in my life, which we should be rejoicing over. And, and then finally, um, just for me personally, I know that I want to make sure that I'm diligent in giving myself to the means of grace, um, of, of scripture, of prayer, of fellowship with the people of God. Um, as I look at my life and I see uh, areas of temptation or sin that at times seem stronger, I can almost always tie that back to some neglect in my, in, in my life of in the word, in prayer, in, in fellowship. So just lovingly saying, let's, let's just examine that too and make sure that we're, we're disciplining ourselves for the purpose of godliness. Amen. <clears throat> Kevin DeYoung. Have it, Lord, that I'll give it to you. Because of time, uh, I, that's going to be our last question. We're going to wrap it up 